Hi, St. Tom's. I'm reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 22, verse 16, to chapter 23, verse 13. When a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. But if her father refuses to give her to him, he shall pay an amount equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a female sorcerer to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down, for it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as cover. In what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbour cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God or curse the leader of your people. You shall not delay to make offerings from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall remain with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be a people consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any meat that is mangled by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked to act as a malicious witness. You shall not follow a majority in wrongdoing. When you bear witness in a lawsuit, you shall not side with the majority so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to the poor in a lawsuit. When you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back. When you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would hold back from setting it free, you must help to set it free. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in their lawsuits. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and those in the right, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the wild animals may eat. You shall do the same with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, so that your ox and your donkey may have relief, and your home-born slave and the resident alien may be refreshed. Be attentive to all that I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. This is the word of the Lord.
Uh, hello to all who've tuned in to join us in our service today. My name is Joshua. I'm the Assistant Minister at St. Tom's. Uh, again, this week, I'll be preaching to you from the reading we've just had from Exodus 22 and 23. It's my great joy to do so. And here we are again. We're in a strange part of the Bible in a world that is so odd that everything about it to us would appear unusual. There's a people at the foot of this fiery mountain. They're recently rescued through the 10 terrifying plagues and through the leg through the Red Sea where Pharaoh's army was drowned. It's a people whose ancient ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, were promised a land and a numerous people. But at the moment, this people stand there stateless, homeless. And from the great mountain, dark smoke and fire before them, comes the thundering voice of the Lord, the Lord who has been their rescuer. And for all the great and incomprehensible spectacle that's right there in front of them, what this thunderous voice of God has to say is, well, how to hold court, what to do with the fruit of the land, when to rest, and what to do when you find your enemy's donkey. Why would these be the things that the mighty voice of God would say to his people? Well, it's because that's what the story of Exodus is all about. God is rescuing his people from being without him. In Egypt, Israel are in exactly the opposite position that God intends for them. They do not serve God, they serve Pharaoh. They do not flourish in a shalom-rich kind of peace. They are dominated and oppressed. They do not know God's rule, they know Egypt's iron fist. Without God, they cannot have their true identity. Without God, they cannot have their true purpose. So God moves, and God moves to rescue the people, to know him and to be his people. And the story is all about God making himself known to Israel as their true God, their true ruler, their true king. And God is making himself known in every step along the way, of this story. That's what happens at the unburning bush when God gives his name, his name to establish the relationship. The name is about who God is and invites Israel to call upon him by that name. God is making himself known in the 10 plagues. He goes to war with Pharaoh. He fights for his people. He makes himself known as the supreme God over creation, mightier than all the gods of Egypt and of Pharaoh himself. He makes himself known as Israel's protector and as the God of judgment. And that's what happens when uh, God is entering into the covenant with Israel for the relationship and the giving of the law. It's at least partly there to help Israel to know God and for them to know what kind of ruler they live under now. God wanted to make himself known in Israel and for them, but also for the sake of the whole world. And as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that what God wants Israel to do is shine forth to all people in the world what God is like and what it means to live in relationship with God. Now, I know I've gone over this ground um, many times before as we've journeyed through the book of Exodus, but this is the last week we're going to be exploring this book, uh, at least for a while. And we must grasp that the law, these very odd commands that don't really apply directly to us today, we must grasp that what that's all about is about the people of God being directed 
to be like God, to be like him. The law is there so that the people will live a shared life of compassion and justice because God is compassionate and just. They are to live a life that shows the world what God is like. They are to do what Adam and Eve were directed to do in the garden, to bear the image of God back to God and out towards the world. The story of Exodus is a story of God rescuing his people to know him, to be with him, and in the end, to bear their true identity and their true purpose. So here in this passage, when Israel is being made into a people who are going to possess the land and can live in God's place under God's rule as God's people, the purpose of all that is to reflect God's nature and character out to each other and to the world. So it's not very surprising then that the source of the law is the nature of God and the goal of the law is to help people live a life that is like God's life. The law lets people know what God is like and directs them to be like that. So let's consider these commands. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives and your children shall become widows and orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down, for it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as cover. In what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. Now let's just notice one thing at a time. Notice that God tells Israel not to oppress the most vulnerable people in their community. The resident alien, which disappointingly does not mean extraterrestrial, is someone who's not an Israelite, but has come to dwell with them in their land. Now, that was a pretty insecure position to be in, even more so in the ancient world than it is today. Israel is forbidden from oppressing them. They cannot be allowed this unspoken culture of treating the foreigner as a class of person who it's just okay for everyone to treat differently, treat worse than one of their own. And the reason given is because Israel were once oppressed and they were rescued. It's a command rooted in both empathy for the other and in the recognition of what God did for them. It's a command that aims to get Israel to live out the story of their salvation, which ends up being living out of the story of who God has been to them, which ends up meaning living out of who God is, the God who rescues from slavery. Notice here also God tells Israel not to act towards the poor like creditors. They have to care about the personal circumstances of the situation, of each person. They have to guard their well-being. They cannot hold power over the other to their hurt. And this is because God sides with those who are in a vulnerable position, like God sided with Israel in Egypt. It is because God is compassionate, and so Israel must live out of who God is, compassion. God tells Israel, I am compassionate. So they are to live together as a compassionate people, letting this characteristic shape their common life. And God has both told and shown Israel that he is just when he judges the evil of Pharaoh and 
promising to retributively judge those who oppress the widow and orphan. So Israel is to live justly. As we read on, there are prohibitions about taking a bribe and a repetition that resident aliens cannot be oppressed. In all these things, justice is to characterise the people and their way of life because justice characterises God. The law is there to help Israel abide by their true identity as God's image and their true vocation or task as God's image bearers. The law gives Israel practices and processes and values which help them to know what it means to live like they are God's people. So all the other stuff about not cursing God or leaders, about making offerings without delay, about consecrating the firstborn to God, about returning the donkey of your neighbour who you don't like very much, uh, leaving the land fellow for seventh year, the Sabbath rest, all of that is there for just the same reason. Israel must live both a moral life, that's like God's character and nature, but also a shared life on the land that is like God's character and nature and is telling the story of who God has shown himself to be to Israel. So, for example, God loves people who don't love him back. So returning the donkey of your neighbour, who you don't like very much, that might sound cute to us, but it's actually hard to be that good. But God is that good, and so his people must demonstrate those incredible lengths of kindness. God loves his creation. He loves the land and the animals. So Israel is to recognise themselves in harmony with those things. God provides for their needs. So Israel is to be free with what God gives and recognise in the offerings in chapter 22, verse 29, that God is the provider and that they share the provision, the provision that God gives. They must, do, they must admit through this process that they are not the makers of grain and fruit and harvest. God loves the poor and the foreigner. So Israel must demonstrate that by keeping the Sabbath and letting the crop of the seventh year always belong to the poor. They demonstrate this same thing, that God loves the poor and the foreigner. And so Israel does too in their common life. God loves truth and justice. So Israel cannot pervert their justice system, but they have to make it work fairly for everybody. The chief thing that we're getting in this particular passage is to be just and to be just because God is just. These are all the things that Israel must do and must not do. But there is one thing in this passage that Israel must be. Verse 31 of chapter 22, you shall be consecrated to me. Now, I really wish that sentence ended a little bit more romantically than it does. Uh, lucky for us, I did not write the scripture, I guess. Maybe it ends like that because Israel is never to scavenge. God provides for them in their land and under his rule, they, they live more bountifully. Maybe that's what it's about. Maybe it is an act of faith that God does provide or a saying no to a cultural practice that comes from a worldview that Israel couldn't accept. Who knows? But whatever it ends like that, the point stands that Israel is to be consecrated, which means set apart in a special way for God. And that is what the law is for, to make Israel more and more into God's likeness, for his purpose, for his pleasure, for his company, to be his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests. The law is there to give them this task to be what nothing else in the world is like, like the God who is just and is 
compassionate. But of course, the law can only do this if we kept it. And the story of human history is that human beings do not do the good they know to be good. So what does Jesus do with this picture? Well, Jesus brightens and fills it. If the story of Exodus is about God making himself known to his people to enter a relationship with them, then the story of Jesus is this plus. Jesus is the full revelation of God as he is. He is as much of God as we can see in this life. Jesus comes among us full of grace and truth. And when he does that, we see God in his care for the world, his concern for justice and inclusion, his welcome of sinners for changed lives of repentance, and his passionate will for reconciliation with the world. Jesus rescues us from slavery. Paul said, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. As we are united to Jesus by putting our trust in him, we are counted to have died the death that Jesus died, and we are free from slavery, the slavery to sin. Jesus came to say and show what God is like in his fullness. He tells us his nature when he's... And of course, Jesus shows us and tells us what God is like. When on the cross, dying, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God left Jesus to be forsaken in our place. He showed us in the only way the world could ever hear it and know it, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. And the response to Jesus that the Bible calls for is to accept him in trust and to accept in trust that his death does matter for your life. And when that happens, Jesus gives us a gift, the gift of his own spirit. When Jesus is about to go to the cross, he says that the spirit will be his gift to help us when he is gone. And this is a really great gift because the spirit does for us what the law could never do. It transforms us to be a people who live in fellowship with each other like God, a life of justice and compassion. The law could tell us what ought to be, but the Spirit brings about that ought when we act in faith. Paul put it this way, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, he goes on. I am warning you as I warned those before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If it is God's own Spirit who lives in us, of course we will be like him. The Spirit is God. And if the Spirit bears his fruit in us, of course it is godliness to love, enjoy, and peace, and so on. The good news is that we have the Spirit of God. What the law could only describe and grant as our aspiration, the Spirit can bring about in transformational power. Nearly done. 
The story of Exodus is God's love. He loved his people and he saved them. He revealed himself so that they could share a relationship of love in the land. The story of Jesus is the story of God's love full and clear. He loved the world and made salvation available to all. He revealed God so that anyone could share a relationship of love here and forever. So if you're hearing this today and you aren't a Christian, then you should ask yourself what you are aspiring to be like. Who else would you rather be like? Surely it is best to be like the one who is love himself, to be like the one who is justice himself, to be like the one who is compassion himself. It is frightening, yes, but it is above all good to live a life being like God. Get in touch with us at St Tom's and we'll talk it through. The invitation from us will always be become a Christian, but we have ways that you can explore if that's something that you really want to do. So do get in touch with us. If you are a Christian, then we need to ask if our lives are conforming to God's love for justice. This particular passage focuses on God's love of justice and his nature of compassion. And so we must ask if we are cooperating with God's spirit or ignoring God's spirit in transforming us in this way. In our globalised world, ideas like justice can seem very, very difficult because there are so many needs everywhere we look. But we must do so simply because that's what God loves. This is not me telling you to get active and feel guilty and be busy. It's to ask if the things you are already doing to act justly in the world are at arm's length from you or things that are part of your spiritual life and your formation. Do you just set up the account for the charity that you support and forget it? Or do you take an interest in their work? Do you pray for them? Do you wrestle with how we give gospel shape to the care of the vulnerable? These are really hard questions. But justice is not simply a work Christians have to do and and tick off and leave. It is part of our conforming to God's likeness and our vocation to show the world what he is like. And so in our lives where we seek to do justice, we must wrestle if this is really transforming us and we also are imprinting God's likeness on the ways that we do justice because that is our vocation. So St. Tom's, go well with wrestling with how it is that we are just in ways that transform us into God's likeness. And to that end, let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for the beautiful story of your salvation of your people in Exodus and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord God, for those of us who wonder today who we are becoming like, that you would help us to see your goodness. We pray for ourselves who wonder how it is that we do justice in in ways that transform us to your likeness, that you would give us the wisdom and clarity we need to go about pursuing justice in ways that are deep, and in ways that transform that process to share your love of goodness, compassion, and justice. We give you thanks that you are good, and you are good to us. So fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Take care, St. Thompson.